Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac. And today we're joined by Hannah Bowman. Hannah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you for having me uh, on here. So most most of the Twitter world knows me as a literary agent. I'm also a grad student in uh, theology and religious studies at Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. And I'm a uh, prison abolitionist. I'm the founder and director of Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. So I'm looking forward to talking abolition theology with you all today. Nice. And I, okay. I love this because when you said most of the Twitter world, I actually came to know you because of your abolition takes. And so when I found out you were an agent, I was like, and it was good because I already had an agent, so I didn't have to worry about like, oh, okay, so that, should I try to impress Hannah with my, with my literary skills? No, all that was off the table. I didn't have to worry about doing that. But I, I really appreciate the fact that your Twitter is very, very, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't pull away from that. Like, I, I feel like a lot of agents and stuff are talking about publishing or the industry all the time. Whereas you, I mean, I would say most of what you're talking about it, that I at least get to see is, is really related to, to your abolition work or theology. Um, so I've always appreciated it. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is to, to talk about abolition theology and uh, yeah, just go from there. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny because I used to have a much more like separated line between my professional agent persona. And that was what I used Twitter for and like my abolition and my theology and all of my sort of religious work. And it was actually uh, after my my daughter was born, I have a three-year-old daughter. And after she was born, I had this sort of epiphany and I'm like, no, all this stuff is just, I'm going to do all of it. It's all going to go together. This is what it means to live as a person with integrity is just to be open to all these various parts of your life. And it was really parenthood that made me realize like, no, you can put all of yourself into multiple things. And so, yeah, that's what I do now. It's it's unfiltered. Well, I was going to say, especially in publishing where I, I routinely, I, I had a similar thing where probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, seven years ago, I decided I'm going to be very outwardly Christian uh, in on my in my Twitter profile to to harm or benefit whatever it doesn't matter and it's always been interesting just how well for the most part how well that is received like a progressive leftist Christian voice is received in publishing because I feel like in a lot of publishing circles that I've been in they just don't know that that exists um, and so I think it's I think it's good to have that kind of to be able to be multifaceted and be one day talking about that and then the next day have a hot take on why Barnes and Noble needs to stay open um, or whatever it is we don't need to go into that but um, morale. <laughs> Morality clauses. My, my take is that morality clauses in publishing agreements are bullshit, and they shouldn't exist. Uh, even for even for um, who? Wait, who's the one who just got his book deal taken away for the morality clause? I'm, I'm oh, Josh it. Holly. But, oh, Holly. Yeah, but yeah. But even you know, if you you should know better than to sign a book with somebody, you're going to have to cancel for a morality clause, and you're you're publishing a book. You're not. You know, you're not going into business with the person. And the reality is you can't stop a publisher from refusing to publish a book, but they at least have to still pay you for it. That's yeah. just, otherwise you don't have a contract. Otherwise they can just cancel it for any reason. We're okay. coming out this hot. We're coming out hot and, and, and broad for uh, morality clauses in publishing. This is what this podcast was founded on. Isaac, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was, uh, I was actually going to reveal the true reason we're having Hannah on the podcast today. It's to stage an intervention for Brian. Oh no, um, we can't talk about this. Tells us on the pod how terrified he is of being canceled by the young adult literary community. <laughs> See, this is the problem. So Hannah came on to help us work through your anxiety and your fear, Brian, as a literary agent about. 
not getting canceled by the YA Twitter mobs. Listen, I, I will say two things about that. One, this is we're actually playing with fire now because until now, there probably was nobody who was going to actually want to listen from the YA community. But now that we have an agent on, they're probably going to hear it. I'm not actually worried about being canceled by the YA Twitter mob because most of the time, the people that get canceled just do stupid shit. They, they don't actually believe the shit that they say they believe. And they get their, as I always say, they get their Scooby mask pulled off in public. And then they don't apologize. Like, if I ever get canceled, the first thing I would do would be like, oh, I, I fucked up. I'm really sorry. Here is my genuine apology. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm not really scared of it. Uh, but, you know, YA Twitter, if you hear this, just know that I love you. I think this actually brings us back around to abolition, though, <laughs> because I think that for me, well, for me, abolition, the abolitionist praxis starts with accountability and it starts with personal accountability and it starts with the ability to apologize when you've screwed up. And that's one of the things that it's so fascinating to me to see when things blow up that that people don't necessarily apologize and that that's, you know, I think, I don't think it's an individual problem necessarily. I think we don't have a culture that encourages people to take accountability and we don't have a way of talking about it. And I think that goes in like the publishing world where we end up with, you know, you're canceled or you're good and no middle ground in between. And I also think it's a problem in the church because I don't think we are good at building cultures of non-punitive accountability in the church. We just, we, we haven't decided to cultivate a countercultural understanding of it. And that's really, that's really upsetting to me. You know, it, that was amazing perfect. non sequitur. Hannah, you should post a podcast. <laughs> um, I, you know, that, that's really interesting because uh, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to Lynn Tonstad on the Assembly Political Theology podcast hosted by Zach and Amaria Armstrong. And Lynn was talking about the definition of original sin. And, and I swear this, this connects to what you're saying, Hannah. But basically, she was saying like, someone had, during the Black Lives Matter protests, had like a clergy person had gone to a protest with a sign that says, racism is proof of original sin. And Lynn Tonstad brought this up on the pod and said, actually, that sign is proof of original sin because she's like, racism is just proof of actual sin. It's not proof of original sin. But the fact that you can try to do something good and deeply mess it up, that's proof of original sin. <laughs> and I think that... So much of our like failure to to apologize in in situations like this, like the the only acceptable way to apologize in public these days is I'm sorry you were offended. I think goes back to that notion that people don't understand that you can have done something in good faith and still hurt people, yeah, <laughs> like unintentionally. Like there's there's this notion that uh, I only have to apologize if I did it on purpose or so, or if I didn't intend the consequence or the damage, then like oh, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but like, I'm not responsible. Well, and I think it's also, it's all driven by this, this, we really want to be able to categorize people as good or bad, right? And you see this in like, not to bring us back to publishing, but you see this in publishing, like there's lists of safe agents going out there, which is a terrifying concept, frankly, because like, you know, nobody's entirely safe all the time. The reality of humanity is that we're all going to do harm sometimes. And I think, we are not good. And one of the things we have to learn from the abolitionist like worldview is about how do we separate harm from this like ontological sense of our being, right? That it's not that people are good people or bad, dangerous people. It's that people do harm. And when you do harm, you're responsible for taking accountability and trying to fix it, whether it was intended or not. But there's nuance around that. Your intent matters. 
but it's not the only thing that drives it, right? And you can apologize for the harm without having to say, oh, I am a terrible, horrible, unredeemable person. And we are not good at living in that space of nuance because we're so stuck in this like punishment control cultural mindset that we've all grown up with. And you mentioned, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts or anyone's thoughts on, on how you, you kind of tied that into how the church isn't good at that either. Um, and, and I wonder how you mean that if you mean it from purely from like an abolitionist like statement of like, of like uh, ICE and, and, and talking about prisons or like just generally theologically, like how we operate kind of also in our parishes and congregations, because that strikes me as a minor, not so minor hole in our armor of theology. If, you're, if, we're, if we're not good at redemption and resurrection, we're in trouble. And so I, I guess I'd, I'd like to hear you say more about that or, or Carrier Isaac as well, if you've kind of encountered that or what you think about that. Well, I definitely think it's not just about our political commitments, but is about the way we organize our communal life in our, in our parishes and our congregations. Um, what, what struck me is I started, I started reading transformative justice sources, right, on dealing with violence from a transformative justice perspective. And what I realized is that transformative justice practitioners talk about accountability all the damn time. It's great. They talk about accountability nonstop. Everybody takes, you know, everybody taking accountability. And how do you apologize? And how do you practice taking accountability for small things so that you're ready to take accountability for bigger things? And how are you intentionally building relationships in which you can be accountable to other people in ways that are, you know, intentionally constructed? And I realized I had never heard that language of accountability in the church. And that really surprised me. We talk about forgiveness, I think way too much. We talk about redemption. Um, We talk about, you know, sin and forgiveness, but we don't have a, a theological framework we're talking about accountability because basically what we have done, I think, in the church is we have adopted our cultural framework, which says, well, if you do something bad, then you get punished for it. And then we've put our little Christian framework on top of it, which says, oh, but sometimes instead of punishment, you can have forgiveness of punishment and God can decide not to punish. And, and those are the only options, right? The options are punishment, exclusion, banishment, control, or forgiveness, reconciliation, lack of punishment. And there's no room in between for like, what if, what if accountability doesn't have anything to do with punishment? And so for me, it's been like a theological epiphany. First of all, to realize I was really sad that we don't talk about this in church. So why have I never heard this language? And I guess the evangelical church has some accountability groups, right? Which I think have their own problems, but I'm in like, I'm an Episcopalian. I'm in the mainline church. I have never heard this language in the mainline church. And then two, how does that affect our whole theological framework? Like when I started reading about accountability, all of a sudden I went back to the New Testament and realized everything the Apostle Paul says makes sense. And all this supposed tension in Paul between like, oh, but is it antinomianism or are we supposed to do good? And is it faith or is it works? And is it justification by grace or is it justification by what we do? All of that goes away if you assume his framework is yeah, of course there's no punishment. The gospel says there's no punishment, but there's still accountability. What does that look like? And we just do not have like a, a mental framework for thinking of account- accountability separate from, from punishment. It's not, it's not the way we were raised. It's not the way we've been taught to raise our children. It's not the way our society is set up. Well, two thoughts on that. Yeah. 
all the accountability groups in evangelical churches are centered around pornography. So there's that. Uh, and then yeah. the second thing is that uh, uh, you're going to get now. Now I'm worried about you getting canceled because the uh, I, I said that the Anglican or the Episcopal Church was mainline, and I had like five uh, five Theobros up in my mentions like we are not mainline. I was like, all right, whatever. Uh, I can let that one go. So anyway, I'm with you. Yeah, don't I know? Don't get me started. Uh, go ahead, Isaac. That's an amazing hill to die on. It's kind of like when uh, you're right. We're not mainlanders. Are like we're not. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, or, yeah, or like we're not. We're not Protestant. Yeah, that's oh, my boy. other favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have been known to describe myself as an Anglo-Catholic, but trust me, if the if if, if traditionalist Anglicans are looking for reasons to cancel me, they can find better reasons than that. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, they're they're not listening to this podcast anymore. I can promise you that. No, no. Um. I mean, I, I, I appreciated what you said about that, Hannah, about Hannah, this, about it's not the way we were raised. Because I think the thing for me that really started changing the way that I was thinking about discipline and punishment was when my wife and I went through uh, foster care training, you know, where they teach you alternative, alternative ways to discipline children that don't involve punishment. And the irony of, of all of that, uh, is that I was in the class with a guy who worked as a guard at a prison. And so, you know, when they would talk about how a study show that, you know, punishing a child after they've done something wrong doesn't, you know, lead to better behavioral outcomes in the future. I just kept making things like, man, if that's true, then what about prison? And like, look, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I kind of just want to, want to start with a very basic question, if that's okay. I, because we, we sort of just kind of started this conversation sort of in the middle of it is assuming that everybody is understanding what we're talking about when we mean abolition. And so I, I guess, you know, if you were talking like giving a very basic outline of, you know, your beliefs about prison abolition 101 and like kind of the foundational parts of those, what would that be? What does it look like? Where do you start? So prison abolition is a theory with a long history, and I think it's actually important to recognize that, that these are not just ideas that people are coming up with now. They're ideas that have been discussed for decades by mostly uh, Black women organizers and incarcerated organizers, and that it grows out of solidarity with incarcerated people and the work that incarcerated people are already doing for their own liberation. So I'm going to say that first, right, because I want to be sure that we're not coming in here, you know, parachuting in from the outside saying, look, we're going to free everybody. That's that's not where abolition started. Um, but, the, you know, the one-on-one thing of, of prison abolition is we shouldn't have prisons, we shouldn't have police, we shouldn't have carceral systems, we don't need those things. So like the first thing to say about 101 is yes, it's actually about abolition. It's actually saying these systems of prisons, police, and all the related carceral systems, which is everything from coercive mental health treatment to child welfare systems to the whole, you know, the whole way we've set up our society around discipline and punishment, we don't need those things. Those are things that uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's a prominent abolitionist theorist, phrases it as, as death-stealing systems and that we need to build life-affirming alternatives. And I find that language really helpful. So the concept of alternatives is essential to prison abolition because so often, particularly when I talk to, you know, rich white people about this, there's this immediate sense of like, but you're going to let people out and you're going to, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to address violence, right? You're not going to address harm. You're not going to address, quote, crime. And so 
The key thing about abolition is it's about building a world where we don't need prisons. Angela Davis's famous book is Are Prisons Obsolete? And her point is prison is obsolete as a way of social control. It's only doing harm. We don't need it. So it's all about building worlds where prisons can be obsolete, building alternative systems and structures and relationships and ways of being accountable to each other. And this is why it starts in the transformative justice world in our own communities. It's about building these alternative communities so that we're not stuck saying, well, state violence is the only response. Oh, well, what could we have done? So abolition is focused on violence prevention. It's focused on violence intervention. It's focused on moving our emphasis away from crime, right, which is a socially constructed way of defining what's against the law so you can punish it, to an understanding of harm, which is about saying who's been affected by this directly and indirectly, and what are we going to do about that? It's related to the restorative justice uh, impetus to meet the needs of those who have been harmed and to figure out who's responsible for meeting those needs and how they're going to do it. It's related to the, the transformative justice impetus, which is to change the conditions that led to harm. So it's all about changing our ideas, changing our communities, changing our systems. It's, it's ch about changing everything from the, the big to the small, right? So another, another excellent Ruth Wilson Gilmore quote is that abolition requires only that we change one thing, which is everything. And so it's about looking at how, you know, everything from capitalism to our, our theology of accountability to how do we practice those things those practices of accountability with each other in interpersonal relationships, all of those have to be reconsidered in light of this desire to not, not have prisons and police, right? To not need to rely on violence as a response to violence. So there's kind of a, in the Christian abolition, like tradition where I work, there's kind of a, a meeting of two worlds. There's the stuff which is coming out of the black liberation theology tradition and, and, you know, incarcerated voices or voices of color and, and black people working for their own liberation. And so there's a whole strand of abolition theology coming out of that. And then there's also a strand which comes out of the sort of more white, often Anabaptist or peace churches, restorative justice tradition. And so there has been, since the 90s, kind of a resurgence in Christians picking up restorative justice in that way. Now that has its own problems, right? Its own sort of problems of positionality and colonialism when it's not done carefully. But those kind of come together, I think, to inform our abolition theology, which is really about saying, how do our abolitionist commitments inform Christian theology? And then how does Christian theology inform our abolitionist commitments? Okay, uh, Gary, do you have a, a question? Sorry, no, I don't. My, okay, cool. my mind is blank. <laughs> That's cool. We need to work out like a symbol because I, I, I do have a follow-up that, that I want to ask, Connor, because there's a ton to unpack there. I think the very first thing, though, is just like on that... You already brought it up, but abolition requires a sort of ontological shift in our perspective about human beings that do harm other people, right? Like there's so much about, I think so much, so much of our attitude about prison is that if someone goes to jail or is incarcerated, that there's something deeply broken in them that they need to be secluded from society or else just by their very nature, they will continue to perpetrate violence against others. What, I mean, what does abolition do um, to reframe that discussion or that view of, like you said, crime and as a social construct? I, yeah, I think that's a really important question. And part of why I think it's important for us to 
engage in abolition and for, you know, Christians to engage in abolition, whether, you know, they're all abolitionists or not, is that abolition forces us to face these unsettling questions, right? Abolition doesn't let us do the thing that in my experience people like to do when talking about mass incarceration, which is focus on nonviolent offenders, right? Which is focus on people who are innocent or wrongfully convicted, which is focus on the, the prison system as a systemic issue, but try to treat it in a way which doesn't necessarily deal with the reality of violence and harm. So even from really, this gets back to that question of intentions, really well-intentioned people, there's a sense that there, there can be, I think, kind of a blind spot around serious harm or a, um, that, that people can be very focused on, well, sure, we understand that our prison system is racist and that'll deal with, and we should get rid of it for most cases, right? But there's always this sort of remaining question, I think, about serious harm. And so what abolition does is it unsettles that. It forces us to actually face those really difficult questions of harm and not try to push them to the side, right? And it forces us to recognize that look, even if you're not fully an abolitionist, to make changes that are going to be sufficient to disrupt mass incarceration, to, to, that are going to be sufficient to this huge problem, are going to force radical changes. They're going to require radical rethinking. Even if you end up saying, well, a few people need to be in prison, you're going to have to radically rethink everything else so completely anyway, that in, in a way that you can only do by looking and taking seriously these hard and unsettling questions, right? So that's kind of my, why you should engage with abolition. But in terms of the question of people, I do think one of the things that forces us to confront is the ways in which we all do harm and the ways in which people who do serious harm are not that different than us, right? And so the abolitionist paradigm is helpful because it doesn't let you say, oh, well, some people are just, you know, quote, mentally ill, and that's why they do harm, which is a really problematic framing anyway. Um, but, but it doesn't let you just do that. It doesn't let you say there are some people who are just predisposed to harm and what can we do about it? It forces us to say violence is relational. It happens in the context of a relationship. It's not just a random event. Violence is contextual. It happens in a particular situation, right? It's not a random unmotivated event. Even serious stranger violence is not unmotivated psychologically or situationally. And so abolition is about looking at those contexts and saying, all right, how could we intervene to address these contexts, these conflicts, these situations that lead to violence? It's about, it's about saying, how can we intervene in ways that are based on relationship rather than just exclusion to deal with these, these issues? Because it is absolutely true that people are doing violence because of, let's call them spiritual wounds, right? Not, I, I don't want to get into the language of mental illness, but that people are doing harm and the, 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 the moral injury of doing harm has to be addressed and the moral injury that led to doing harm has to be addressed. And all those things are better addressed in compassionate relationships and compassionate, accountable relationships that aren't saying, hey, you get to go keep doing violence. But in ongoing relationships, they're better addressed there than they are by throwing someone in a cage, right? Like fundamentally, what defines a prison is exclusion and coercion, no matter how you want to think about it or build it or make it nicer. If it's a place that you're sent to to get you away from people and that you don't have control over whether you're there or what you do there, it's a prison. And so the abolitionist provocation is that 
exclusion and coercion are not going to address the underlying issues driving violence, either the systemic ones, right, in which we're all complicit in what causes harm, right, in which we're all complicit in those contexts of harm, or the really honestly personal ones, um, you know, where we want people to take accountability for what they've done and the, the place where accountability occurs is within relationships and, and sort of liberated or, or voluntary relationships, not in situations of exclusion and coercion. I am rambling again. That's, I mean, there, you know, we're, this is one of those difficult things where we've asked you to summarize an entire sort of tradition of thought and praxis. So, you know, there's no pressure here. It's the beginning of a conversation for sure. Hopefully it's the beginning of a conversation for folks who are listening who have never, who have just been introduced to this way of thinking. Certainly, you know, defund the police and, and so many other parts of this movement have come to greater prominence than they have. And, and it, for this younger generation over the summer. And, um, but, you know, I, I think that there, there's so, there are so many misnomers out there about, you know, about crime statistics, about, you know, the, the relation that, but that thing you said that violence is relational, it's got to be at the heart of them because I think so often we, we treat, violence like it's always at arm's length it's always at random it's always uncontrollable and unavoidable because it's coming from outside of a community it's being sort of imposed upon you rather than having this like its sources in the injustices within a community and i think that um that's one of the sort of really kind of paradigmatic shifts that abolition offers is that when you think about violence as in relation to to something else that that suddenly what it, what it, what like solving it requires is paying attention to what's going on around you yeah. rather than you know but i think it also goes to this it speaks to this myth that our criminal justice system is preventing violence uh as as it currently exists today, that like without, you know, when people hear prison abolition or we don't want violent offenders in jail, they think, well, you know, without the police or without the prisons, all of these things would be happening just unchecked. Well, exactly. And I think it it raises the question of who we see as being in our communities, right? We don't want to admit that people are, and this is again, I think especially for rich white mainline Christians and Episcopalians, we don't want to admit that, you know, people in our communities are suffering violence and are perpetrating violence, right? Yeah, that, it, that, yeah. that harm is happening. And we, you know, we, we want to sort of, we don't want to face that, right? We don't want to, we're, we're used to thinking of our communities as places where that kind of thing basically doesn't happen. And I don't think that's intentional. I think it's just for a lot of us, at least in my context, it's a feature of, well, you know, we're not in close relationship with people whose lives are maybe more defined by the presence of violence around them, right? Like, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. It is, you know, still heavily segregated. The reality is that my church is very white and it's in a, it's in a rich neighborhood that's very different than what you would find in other neighborhoods in the city. And so those realities make it hard for us to to, to feel really like proximate, right? Brian Stevenson uses the, the language of proximity as something you should seek to get proximate with people who are different. And I think that's really powerful because otherwise you just don't know what you don't know and you don't realize that, oh, with all the best of intentions, we're talking about 
violence and harm as things that happen that, as you say, Isaac, coming from the outside or that happen to other people and not thinking about them as essentially extensions of what's already happening in our relationships, right? What, what I love about the transformative justice paradigm is this idea that the ways, the things we do and the ways we harm each other, even when they're small or not, quote, criminal, are not that different than the bigger harm. I mean, they're different in effect, right? This is not to minimize the seriousness of, of violence, but is instead to say, we can practice improving our relationships. We can practice being kinder and addressing small harm and being accountable in ways that then also are transferable to dealing with bigger harm. It's not like, it's not like these problems are impossible for us as normal people to solve, right? And I think part of the the problem and the reliance on, on prisons and police, and part of the reason why defund the police is seen as such a scary thing, is we've sort of trained ourselves into thinking into this, this kind of um, credentialism, right? Sarah Kenzier talks about credentialism in another context, but this idea that you have to have a certain degree to be able to deal with violence. You have to be a therapist. You have to be a mental health professional. You have to be a cop, right? You have to have particular training. And that's not to say there isn't room for skills, you know, skills-based development skill development or skills-based trainings, but it is to say that we have this idea that it's not safe to try to engage with these hard questions as normal people, that it has to be done in a particular professionalized way. I think it's driven a little bit by our fear of liability, honestly. Right. And the, the transformative justice mindset is we have what we need. We can engage in this work and figure it out as we go along and be aware that, yeah, we're going to make mistakes and probably do harm, but we're going to be aware of that and be accountable for the harm we do and that we have to try anyway, right? So there's something I think really empowering about the abolition mindset, about the idea that we can try to solve these problems ourselves. We don't always have to call somebody else to handle it for us. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the idea that folks are are not taught to um, think about some of the violence, like some of the harm that comes from even different types of relationships, like spiritual relationships or parental or familial ones as a type of violence, I think is part of the reason why there are so many um, people struggling with a type of spiritual wounding that they don't have the language to express. And yet so much of you know the topics on this podcast the the discussions amongst young adults all over the United States about religion is really conversations about violence that's been done to them in you know ecclesial context and and so i think that there's also a very i mean i think part of it right what you you mean you know, we've mentioned the child welfare welfare system it it is deeply deeply problematic, and that's definitely one of the things we experienced by getting involved in it. But during the training, you know, people had to take this assessment about trauma they had experienced, and everybody's score was much higher than they thought it would be. And the lesson there wasn't, "Oh crap, I had a like messed up childhood," but "Oh man, trauma is way more common than we like to acknowledge." Um, so I, I think that part of what, you know, when people hear prison abolition, they're thinking, oh, well, does this really have anything to do with me? But as, you know, that the quote from um, 
Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you mentioned is that it, it's not just about um, violence that's committed, uh, you know, publicly, but also just about the the dynamics within a community that you choose or that is chosen for you, family or not. Well, and the reality is that this line we have of criminal or not criminal is profoundly distorting, right? Because as you say, spiritual harm, spiritual abuse basically can't get taken seriously as abuse because it's not, quote, criminal. And we have set up a system where we've said certain types of harm are worthy of accountability and certain types aren't. And obviously, this has been a discussion for a long time, right? And many of the um, laws against sexual and domestic violence we have now which are very harsh, came out of a desire to take those sort of formerly understood as types of private violence seriously. Um, and, you know, without, without supporting the, the harsh consequences that have come from that, we can appreciate, I think, the desire to have things be taken seriously, right? The desire to say, no, harm matters. And looking at what causes harm matters, but the reality is that we we still sort of put some things in a box, and the things we put in a box are very culturally driven, right? So a classic sort of abolitionist critique is this fact that you know employers steal much more money in wage theft than basically is the entire is, is stolen by every all other theft in the United States, right? But wage theft isn't classified as a crime. So if you steal an object from somebody because you're poor then you're a criminal, you're a thief. But if you're an employer and you don't pay your employer, your employee their wages, you're not. And that's in our criminal code, right? And if people, you know, when, when companies cause death because of their malfeasance, that's mm-hmm. not understood as criminal. That's not understood as murder. And so all of our language and all of our cultural conceptions have driven us to this like particular understanding of what counts as harm. And it's not helping us actually resist harm because it's not actually focusing on what is experienced as harm, right? And what do we actually have to do to promote healing, to promote accountability, to encourage people to take accountability for harm, whether it's small or or big. But we just, but we we like, we have this line and it's, the line between criminal and non-criminal is actually fairly arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we see that in, in like what you just said about what gets punished or, or what's considered criminal. I was thinking about the Sackler family who, I can't remember the name of their company, who manu- manufactured Oxycontin and then realized it was addictive and basically you know, created the opioid crisis through their practices of um, overflowing the market with that drugs, with that drug, you know, buying off doctors to prescribe it without, without need and addicting millions of people to opiates and you know yeah they've been held accountable they're not facing um they're not facing jail time um they've been like fined but you're right like when when corporate malfeasance like you know when uh dupont poisons the water in a community in west virginia like no one even hears about it or like a coal ash spill in my community a few years back that's done irreparable harm to the environment like those things are never punished with corporations being forced to go out of business or they're like ceo going to jail it, because it's not seen as like um i don't know there's an interesting dynamic there like their their penalty is always financial it's never restored over in any well, other way well and i also want to just point out that 
I don't think you can hold someone accountable. I think accountability is something that has to be taken. It can't be imposed. And so they haven't been held accountable. Their company paid a fine. It has nothing to do with actually transforming them to the kind of people or the kind of company or the kind of economic system that's not going to lead to this happening again. It has nothing to do with actually making up for the harm of all the people harmed by the opioid crisis, right? So, you know, I don't want CEOs to go to jail. I want us to have space for them to actually deal with the harm and be able to face the harm of what they have caused. And that requires much bigger and more transformative changes than throwing one CEO in jail. Right. And and I think that... um... But I think so much about, you know, systemic issues like that um, is is a lot of times veiled by the language of uh, inevitability, like like those things happening, you know, we all always switch into the passive voice. Mistakes were made rather than, you know, these things are happening because of choices made by real human beings who are seeking profit motives or whatever else. Just the same way that, you know, when things like, uh, like we have the police system that we do because we've chosen it, not because it just happened. Well, exactly. And I think for me, part of the big abolitionist paradigm shift was recognizing that prisons are not an inevitability. And so often we, and this goes back to that, how do we empower ourselves, right? We disempower ourselves by saying, oh, well, but obviously every society is going to have prisons and police. It's an inevitability. When the reality is that the systems we have are systems we have chosen and we can choose to have something else. We don't have to choose to put people in prison. We've chosen to invest in those, to build them, to to, to say this is the way we address violence. I was just reading uh, this morning about a very upsetting case, and I'll spare you the details, but it was a, a, a case here in Southern California of somebody who had murdered uh, children and had been caught many years later and is serving, you know, just was sentenced to serve life without parole. And, you know, I'm an abolitionist and I can also say, boy, I'm not like, you know, super sad for this guy. Um, But at the same time, what I realized was that the abolitionist response isn't to say, oh, you know, let's let him out. Right. But is instead to say, wow, why is this the only choice we've been given? Right. Why is this the system we have? Why am I put in a position where I have to say, oh, obviously, this is this is the response. This is the thing that will be just this is the thing that will keep us safe. Whereas we could imagine making different choices. Right. He's at this point, an old man. What would it look like to make different choices to say, what are you going to do to take accountability and how are we going to help people heal? And what are we going to do to ensure future safety? All of those are questions which could have multiple answers. Well, and it strikes me. I've been listening this whole time. Um, I, it strikes me that uh, <laughs> that you know I, I like thinking about it like lack of imagination because you actually shocked me when you were like I don't want that CEO to go to jail because that that I was like oh I do um, and then I was I, I got convicted by that right like how that how quickly how quickly that kind of mindset and I, I think you saw it with the impeachment with Donald Trump where all of these like progressive people that I think would probably agree with an abolitionist mindset from the for the most part were like he needs to go to jail and so half of me was like. He's never going to jail. Like he's never going to jail. Like not at least not from this thing because the, the accountability is like they don't want they don't want to set up a level of accountability because as soon as that level of accountability gets yeah. raised, 
then it's then it's for all of them. So it doesn't matter how terrible he is. It, it creates the same the same bar for all of the politicians. And I think it's this, probably the same way for for CEOs and corporate people. Like when we talk about what they're losing, they're losing million dollar gigs where they get to do all kinds of terrible stuff for their own benefit or for the shareholders' benefits. So they're not really losing anything when when that stuff happens. Um, so it's like whenever I hear about accountability, it's like. I guess that how how high how how do we even raise that bar that high up so it actually doesn't it it affects everybody and not just kind of the people who are typically the ones that end up in prison. Right. I mean, I think that's a hard systemic yeah. problem, right? I think maybe this is a point to talk about another thing that's essential to understanding abolition, which is that it is also about building power, right? That we like to talk, and this is again a place where I think the church is really uncomfortable when we talk about abolition in church, because I think that we like to talk in like Christianity about relationships and we like to talk about restorative justice and we like to talk about community and we don't like to talk about what does it actually mean to build power to start pressuring systems to change in the way we want in ways that are not coercive but also are not um, unregulated, right? That we're not saying hey, we're going to pass a law about this. We're still encouraging change that's voluntary, but we're, also in, but we're also building power and encouraging social pressure and building alternatives and moving resources away from things and saying, look, we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to, we're going to build this other thing and do it in a different way, right? And so this is a hard systemic problem, but I think that it is essential to abolition to recognize it not just as being about the, the private, but also about the public and about saying, no, we're, we're going to be comfortable saying we're part of a movement which is going to insist on changes to our economic system, which is going to insist on changes to our political system, which is going to insist on changing the culture. And I think that is something that mainline and Anglican churches, which I guess is what we're calling them now, uh, are uh, not comfortable doing, right? Because that language of power is is very uncomfortable in the Christian-like worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, case in point, just if you started looking at how many universities or I don't know about churches specifically, but just universities whose whose pension funds or endowments are invested in private prisons, it's so many of the major ones. And and um, this is where it gets so difficult when people want to make moral demands of these institutions that are embedded in these systems of, uh, you know, sort of racial and global injustice. It's that our economy is tied up in the prison system, in the police system, in the militaristic domination of the rest of the world. Like the reason why, you know, Joe Biden wants to run away from defund the police every chance he gets or to scapegoat it as the reason why Democrats can't win more seats is because there is massive money invested in all of these things. And our economy is like reliant as currently constructed upon them to continue. You know, wealth in this country is driven by um, by this sort of exploitation. And that's why it's a third rail topic, not because it's unpopular. It's because it's sustaining the empire as it currently is. I think it's partly about wealth. And I think it is also about power more broadly. I think it's about cultural power because I, I know a lot of people who are not necessarily thinking, oh, we have to support the police so we can prop up capitalism, right? But who are who are nonetheless really scared of, of that phrasing. I think defund the police is actually a great example of what it means for us in like an abolitionist way to build power, right? To build nonviolent people power. Because part of the reason when I hear a lot, you know, why do we have to say defund the police? Why don't we just reinvest money in various alternatives? Why do we have to use this 
framing, which is polarizing, which is divisive, which people find offensive, right? And my answer is part of the reason activists use defund the police is because it's a question of power. The reason we can't invest things in other services, the reason we can't move away from it is because right now the police have the power. And defunding the police is about saying, hey, you don't have the power. We have the power. The power over police funding is the only power we have over police who we have granted the right to use violence on us, right? And so defund the police is about saying we are reclaiming that power. We are telling you, you don't get to be the power in our society anymore. We have the power and now we're going to use it in a different way. And that's why it can't be a non-confrontational thing. You can't say, oh, well, let's just invest in the alternatives and not really confront police power because ultimately you have to confront the powers of the world. If you have to build power, if you want to actually make sustainable changes. I want to pivot to like some of the Christian aspects of this. But first, I, I just have to share this amazing bumper sticker I saw a couple of weeks ago. It was a, a Blue Lives Matter sticker on the back of a truck. Way too long for a single sticker, but it said, defund the police, question mark, call a protester the next time you get robbed. And it's like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what we want you to do. Like, that's exactly what we're asking you know, people to do is have systems of community safety and accountability rather than calling the cops. It was just uh it was just such an amazing L for that for that person. <laughs> Can, so before you transition to the church thing, I, I think again, when you're talking about again that I think there's like a fundamental lack of imagination. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I've liked the defund the police language is the fact that because it is so shocking and because it is so just like abrasive to people, it's like that but you get kicked out of that reality, right? And so like all of a sudden you maybe see the whole, I don't, I'm trying not to do a matrix reference here, but you do, but you do like all of a sudden you realize that maybe the reality is something that is constructed, right? Like it is something that's constructed. And so like that to me is where I see the power of the church. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still a part of this is the idea of like it gives people an opportunity to have that language of like possibility or imagination or transformation. I mean, I, I love the idea of the church as a place that's building moral imagination. I don't know that we're always that good at it, right? So I agree. I think there is a paradigm shift. And for me, the abolitionist paradigm shift, this epiphany of like, oh, I don't have to keep pretending that prisons are a tragic inevitability. I can just say, no, this is bad and we need to choose something else, was a deeply like liberating and it was a relief for me. It was like a religious experience. I had this moment when I said, oh, we can do other things. We don't have to do this. I don't have to keep saying, oh, well, prisons are terrible, but what can you do? We can we can just do something else, right? And this was, I, I, honestly, my work, my, my work with Christians for Abolition is that I want other people to have that epiphany. I want people who are, you know, like me and don't know about this stuff to have that paradigm shift. Because I think once you've made that paradigm shift, it affects how you see everything, right? You can no longer talk about other political topics with anybody because all of our political systems and our economic systems are built around coercion, control, discipline, and punishment. And once you've made that paradigm shift, it's like, well, the first thing we have to say if we're going to talk about abortion is that criminalization doesn't solve problems. The first thing we're going to say, if we're, we have to say if we're going to talk about gun violence, is that criminalization doesn't solve problems, right? And that, that we need other ways of treating these as violence prevention that aren't just about passing laws. Why is our response always mm -hmm. to pass more laws that are going to send more people to prison? So um, it's, it really is a paradigm shift. The matrix is not a bad, a bad uh, 
comparison because once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? And once you've seen that this that the system is working as designed is the thing that abolitionists say all the time, right? The system's not broken. It's working as designed. And once you see that, you can't unsee it. And it's like, it's very hard to, to get back into that mindset of, of, of tinkering around the edges. And I think, again, that's why the, the abolitionists, the defund the police, the con- confrontation is essential because otherwise we don't think big enough. We have this sense that we can fight mass incarceration and police violence without really disrupting the status quo. And that's not, not true. It's just not true. And abolition is brave enough to say we have to have the imagination to leave the status quo behind and try something else. This reminds me of something Carrie said to me once uh, when I brought up neoliberalism uh, and how it like was this idea that it's something that kind of fundamentally, when I kind of started thinking about that, fundamentally like changed everything the way I saw things. I was like, oh, that's neoliberalism. That's neoliberalism. I I was just like, name it everywhere. And Carrie said, uh, neoliberalism is QAnon for progressives, which I always thought was was, uh, really hilarious and amusing. You, You were the ones that said that to me, right, Carrie? I think. Did I say that? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to give you credit because it was awesome. Saying it. But, I, but I think it's like, I think it's true. But I think it's like what you just said, Hannah, is is like, that's what it is. It's like, once you see it, this is like the whole reason why we send kids on like youth group mission trips and stuff like that. It's because we're trying to engender in them some kind of like empathy or a different lens that they're going to see the world through. And it, it never works in the way that we want it to. But I think like from an abolitionist standpoint, that's what this is doing. Is like, it, it, it fundamentally breaks something that you can't not see it as connected to everything else in the world. Uh, so I love that. And that's one of the things that I love about your your Twitter feed is that like uh, you'll be you'll be on a conversation all the in your your a thread will end, and that's why we should ab- uh, abolish prisons. So I was like, oh, there it is. All right, yep, connected, brought it back. I love it. Well, and I think the challenge in the church is that I, I think the church really has the desire to form like an alternative imagination, right? Like it really wants to say, like I honestly think the church is a, is a well-intentioned place, and it wants to say we have this different kind of community, and we want to be compassionate and inclusive in a different way, and we want to. You know, we want to have this sort of paradigm shift. I think Christian discipleship should involve a paradigm shift, right? If, it, if you're not shifting paradigms, you're not doing it right. But at the same time, what I have found is that there's a real hesitancy, at least in the corners of the church world that I'm in, to be sufficiently specific to actually push the paradigm shift. And that's not to say you have to have a fight, right? Because it's you don't shift people's paradigms by yelling at them. I get that. Um, so it's not that it has to be confrontational, but it's that we don't want to look at the implications, the specific implications of the things we believe. So like when people ask me, why do you insist on abolition, right, in the church? And I'm, I'm going to be very Episcopalian here for a second. But I'm like, really, ultimately, I think the reason that we have to support abolition in the church and nothing less is because in our baptismal vows, we vow that we're going to renounce the evil powers of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God, right? And so prisons and policing, these systems of coercion, exclusion, and control are precisely evil powers of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. So do we want to renounce those or not? We promised that we were going to renounce those. We said that's what baptism means. And that doesn't leave us room to say, oh, well, there's a wide variety of opinions about prisons. Oh, well, we maybe don't need to, we don't need to commit to something extreme. We can be opposed to mass incarceration, but we don't have to be specific about it. And so we don't want to say it specifically. We want to renounce the evil powers of this world without actually naming the evil powers of this world. And I don't think we can do that, right? And maybe, you know, sure, I get that people may disagree with me about whether prisons and police are evil powers of the world. But I think you have to, I think that's a different issue than the fact that 
because there's disagreement rather than sort of faithfully engaging that conflict, we say, oh, well, we'll just say evil powers and leave it up to leave it up to the viewer to decide what those might be. Yeah, I mean, it's a type of confession that kind of allows people to wash their hands. I mean, I, I think that uh, people have not taken Pontius Pilate seriously enough for um, how many of us are doing that every single day in America. Like to live in America is to daily wash your hands of responsibility for the violence that sustains our way of life. Or the other option is crucifixion by this system. So yeah, I'm always grateful that that's in the creeds that... But it also kills me because people are always like, you know, we can't ever like stake participation in the body of Christ on holding these commitments, you know. Uh, but I, but the saddest part about it for me is that we have this conviction that Jesus at the end wins, right? Like there aren't going to be any prisons in the kingdom of God. There aren't going to be police in the kingdom of God. And so it's like, we go around thinking, oh, can I like, how, how you know, we're so afraid to make sort of, to like stake anything or to like make these bold claims, but it's like, that's how it's going to play out, y'all. Like, that's our hope that that stuff is going to disappear. So like, why would we want to be like, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to like commit myself to anything too crazy when like, that's how we think this is all going to end. Like at the well, end, that stuff's going to get destroyed. It's like, and also in some ways, like, hasn't it already been destroyed? I mean, like hell is yeah. like the ultimate prison and Jesus has already harrowed hell. Like we believe that <laughs> so like why would we be like actually it's actually fine that we as christians like love putting people in hell when jesus has already broken open like the ultimate prison well anyway. and the harrowing of hell is that is like actually central to my own abolition theology um i i have written an article about this about the harrowing of hell as abolition right that exactly jesus goes in and breaks the doors down and breaks people out like that's that's what's happening um and i think you know i think hell is a really interesting question because the, the 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 church has kind of you know used hell to reproduce itself in the same way that racial capitalism uses the prison to reproduce itself mm. like you can't talk about prisons and the church without talking about hell but what i find fascinating is i know a lot of people who are uncomfortable with abolition but are also you know pretty much universalists right who believe that jesus has more or less emptied hell and i think for me those things are very closely tied and i think it it you know isaac like you say the reason we know that prisons and police are the evil powers of the world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God is like, first of all, because we see them corrupting and destroying the creatures of God, but also because when we imagine the reign of God, we don't see prisons and police in it, right? And so why are we trying to uphold these systems now? Why are we saying this is a thing that, that we can support? We know that they're not good because we know that that's not what God wants for the world. And so why not build something else? Why not trust that God is building something else, right? And that we don't have to keep holding on to this. This is, it's not, you know, it's not to deny the reality of human violence. It's not to deny the reality of human sin. It's not to deny that the kingdom of God hasn't come in its fullness yet. But at the same time, I think we way underestimate the extent to which God is already active in the world and God is already bringing about the reign of God, and we want to participate in that, right? Like it's not, it, we, we may or may not succeed in abolishing prisons in my lifetime, right? But what possible justification is there for us as Christians not to try? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think so much of it is, um, is based on the way we treat our sort of religious life as like whether or not we believe in the in this object, God is this 
other thing. Like, you know, does this like divine whatever exists rather than like a question of that scripture feels pretty comfortable saying that um, if prisons aren't broken, if chains aren't snapped by divine power, then God isn't real. Like, you know, I've, I've been doing the, you know, the Psalter every month and, you know, we can talk about scriptural images of, of abolition all the time, but the Psalms talk about this all the time. Like, we know who God is because God breaks chains and sets the oppressed free. And like, rather than saying, oh, what are we committing ourselves to when we're committing to this faith? It's like, actually, what has God, how has God chosen to communicate to us about who God is and what God wants? It's like, because if these things are happening, then that's the best reason to stop, you know, believing that God is real. Not like, you know, I don't know, this is, Maybe I'm pulling too many other things into this, but it's just like, okay, like that's where the proof is. It's in this liberating action and it's nowhere else. The case so for like, Christ. It, I think that, um, what? I said the case for Christ. You like that book, right? Am I the only one? Lisa Robo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my version of the case for Christ. No, no, it's just like... About to blow um, up. I'm sorry. I think that's exactly I like first of all, preach. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think I think we have a theological problem, which is that we don't want to take seriously the work that God is doing, right? That we want to push the 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 parousia, the fullness of the reign of God off to the end of history and not have it upset the status quo, right? When the fact is that, you know, the, the, the end times started when Jesus rose from the dead. And now we are understanding how this world is, is changing, right? Because of God's action. And I think we have an ecclesiological problem, which is that we don't really want to think of the church as a body based on mutual accountability and, and dis mutual discernment of commitments and then accountability to those commitments. We want to think of the church as a public forum, as a, yeah. a forum where anybody can come with their own opinions and commitments and can be welcome. And that, that, and that we're only sort of gathered together by this, like, you know, this one belief we have in Jesus. But of course the problem I think with belief in Jesus is that the church is not a forum. The church is a body and that Christian discipleship changes all of our other commitments and should change all of our other commitments and should challenge them. And so that's hard language to bring up because it's been used so abusively and hierarchically and badly by the church for a long time. And I don't mean to suggest that it's not to say there's not room for difference or disagreement, but at the same time, there's got to be mutual discernment and accountability and commitment. You can't just say, oh, well, we're not going to talk about that stuff. Well, it's a tone. It's like a yeah. tone. It's are you a Dean Hollerith, are you listening? Wait, say it again. What? Uh, <laughs> I said, hey, Dean Hollerith, are oh. you listening? <laughs> I, I mean, gonna... I, I, so much of this goes back to me for this. I, I've been reflecting on the story of, of Paul's conversion in Acts. And when... Jesus appears to Ananias to go and tells him to go and baptize Paul and heal him. Um, Ananias is like, uh, have you heard about what that guy's been doing? I'm not, I'm not going to go show up at his house. And then Jesus says, I think some of the most like profoundly terrifying words in, in the gospel for why Ananias has to, has to go anyway. And he says, 
He's like, I want you to go because there's going to be this change. And then he says about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then what Paul ends up doing in his mission is a shitload of prison abolition after that. Like, and, and I think that there's something that people who live in you know, the most violent empire in the history of the world have to take seriously about that call to discipleship. Like how much we must suffer for the sake of Christ's name and the connection it has to the really, really difficult work of abolition and real transformative justice. I, I also love that story. And I love the fact that Paul's conversion relies on Ananias being willing to, to trust him. And I also realized last time I read that story uh, a few weeks ago, that in fact, Paul is a cop. Yeah. Paul is saying he's going to go and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem. He is absolutely going to arrest Christians. And so it's a story about the conversion of a cop. Yeah. Another way to think about that, uh, Chris Hoke, who was on the podcast uh, a couple episodes ago, he that's that's one of his fundamental uh, stories for the ministry that he does with reentry. And so how he interprets that story a lot of times is that that Paul is actually the violent offender, and Ananias is the one that comes in and brings him back out into the world through you know through the redemption of love of Jesus. Um, and so it's it's an interesting thing to think about in from that way. And so that that actually fun like. Um, frames his entire ministry, uh, which went from originally being like a gang pastor, like being in the jails and stuff, to now focusing completely on something that he calls one one prisoner, one parish, which is the idea of getting every church uh, involved in the life of one uh, prisoner, a person who's re-entering into society out of the out of the system. Is that a good is that a good expression or a bad one, Hannah? <laughs> could, yeah, that's a wow, that sounds like amazing work and I want to be in touch with him. Can yeah. you put me in touch with yeah. him? Yeah, also he he wrote a, he wrote an awesome book called Wanted um, about the work that he does. But but one thing that strikes me about this conversation too that I really is like it also brings up this idea that I think that what happens theologically is that there's this idea of like atonement that does not include liberation in any way, right? So like the atonement is like this thing like we have to pay for our um, we have to pay for our our sins, pay for your penalties and stuff like that. But there is no nothing that happens before then, kind of like what you were saying, Hannah, that it happens at the end. That there isn't liberation that's tied up in that work that happens, you know, through the grace of God um, right now in our own lives and in lives of the people that we don't want it to happen in. Like Paul's a perfect example of that. Like if we're living in Paul's probably like, no, fuck that guy. I don't want him getting that. Or the end of Jonah. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, the end of like the Jonah story, Jonah's like all pissed off. He's like, these people are getting this? Hell no. And then he ends up sitting there under a rain cloud or something. I can't remember how it actually ends. But he's like all, he's, and like, it's like, that's the kind of liberation that I think that comes up in this story that people are really uncomfortable with. What? I, I'm just, I'm just pulling out stories, Isaac. I don't even care if they're connected or not. Uh, well, is it, like that liberation is the thing that I think, I think that's what makes us I uncomfortable. I think it's worth going back to this idea of accountability one more time. And I'm, I'm mindful of of the time here that, you know, Isaac brings up that idea that Paul is going to suffer for, for God's name. And it's really challenging because we don't want suffering, right? And we don't want suffering as punishment. And I think there's something really important, again, when we go back to this idea of accountability, that it's about the difficult work of living accountably, which is hard, which can be painful, but which ultimately is a life-affirming thing done in community, right? It's not that 
the Lord wants Paul to suffer because suffering is good. It's not that the Lord wants Paul to suffer because Paul has to suffer in order to be punished and whatever. It's not that the Lord wants Paul to suffer in a way that's going to cause Paul harm, trauma, or you know, be abusive to him. It's that this is the work of accountability, which can be painful, but is always life-giving. And if we're setting up structures that we're calling accountability, but that are actually punishment, if we're setting up structures of church discipline, which are based on exclusion or shame, or I am not a big fan of excommunication, and we're saying, oh, but this is actually for the sake of repentance, that's not accountability. That's imposing suffering, which is bad, but it's not saying, hey, the work of accountability is hard, but it's life-giving. And that's why, like, when Paul writes, right, and he writes this, and it's a, a classic and a problematic I get it, like problematic supersessionist text, but he says, and the letter kills and the spirit gives life. What he's getting at, I think, is this idea that there is a way of doing accountability that is deadly, that is about punishment, that is about harm, that leads to death. And there is a way of doing accountability that is life affirming and that leads to community. And, you know, comparing that to Judaism, Christianity, law, gospel, whatever, that framing is wrong. But I think Paul is right that there's something there which is about, you know, good, good accountability versus bad suffering, which is about the good hard things versus the bad hard things. Yeah, shout out to Matthew Thiessen, a really great New Testament scholar who is going to, who speaks directly to Paul's audiences in in his letters in a book called Paul and the Gentile Problem. So everybody read that because then it becomes clear that he's not doing that. He's he's talking he's only talking to Gentiles in the letter of Romans. But anyway, that I couldn't recommend that book high, highly enough. Um, I'm sorry, I thought that was about to be a joke about Reliant K. <laughs> I was really praised <laughs> yeah. for that. Oh, that would have been a, that would have been like peak end of this episode. Reliant K uh, bits. I like it. Save it for next time. Well, yeah, I just think that. The point that that uh, Matt that Thiessen makes in that book is that what Paul's trying to say is that like um, is that you know the, basically the what the law means for Gentiles is different than what it means what it means for the Jewish people. It, basically, it means that Gentiles aren't chosen, and that you you know you can never justify yourself as a Gentile under the law. So Christ better work out for you, or else you got no hope. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Gary. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say that I hate to bring up the fight corner after that wonderful, (laughs) wonderful encapsulation of like what true accountability looks like, but I'm gonna. (laughs) Because, uh, Hannah, you probably don't know this because I, but I live in Texas and uh, last week we lost power for three days. We lost water for five uh, and lots of like 57 people died so far from various like, like hypothermia, people's houses burned down. So not to be a downer in the chat, but I'm pretty pissed. And the fight corner this week is an unholy trinity of Ted Cruz, Rick Perry, and our current governor, Greg Abbott. But in the context of accountability, part of their accountability is going to be my fist to their face because I hate them. And I, I just hate them. I do. That's not a Christian thing. But the fight corner this week is really like the systems of change the systems of power in Texas that led to this complete breakdown in uh, our power grid not being connected to the national power grid, which meant that uh, the entire state lost power when we went below freezing. I, I've been thinking, because uh, I've been thinking basically about uh, my own survival, the survival of my family for the last week, uh, 
it's not to sound dramatic because we are really fine. But when I was thinking about all of uh, your great explanations of abolition, Hannah, I was also, I was thinking pretty directly about what that looks like in Texas, which is that I do not want Ted Cruz specifically to go to prison. And I don't want Greg Abbott specifically to go to prison. Although they both <laughs> deserve it in my angry mind right now. But what, what I want is for my state to take seriously uh, its commitments to the lives of its citizens, because I love Texas and I love Texas people. And it is hard to watch so many of my fellow Texans um, be completely forgotten because they're in prison, because they're in ICE detainment camps along the border uh, where they're being actively punished for no crime. Uh, and what I want is what truly like what I want through an abolitionist framework is a better Texas and a better world. And so uh, that's my nice fight corner this week. Well, I want to I want to throw in. Uh, can we throw in the progressives dunking on uh, Texans uh, in the while they're you know while they're basically cold in the cold with no power, saying, "Well, this is what you get for voting red." Welcome to the fight corner. You're also involved. Those oh people, yeah. If you treated here. anything along the lines of, well, y'all voted for this, fuck you. Come fight me in my house. <laughs> I think the thing about abolition is it's all based on solidarity, right? It's all about our solidarity across those differences because if we if we fight together, fight nonviolently together, like then we win. And you know, ultimately ultimately none of us are free until all of us are free that's that's what it is it doesn't have to do with who you voted for like none of us none of us are free till all of us are free well isaac had to jump off i can never remember how he signs off something about all takes were revealed but i think there were many takes revealed today so hannah thanks for coming on uh i appreciated it and uh yeah let's let's keep this up let's 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 get this uh get these christian people uh, actually thinking about abolition and doing the right work Hey, absolutely. And I encourage everybody interested in this. I've got lots more up at my site, christiansforabolition.org. And thank you so much for having me on today. Awesome. Thanks thank for you. coming on.